This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to... Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT. My name is Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being here and listening to us. We are going to have a great show for you today. Today we have the one and only El Profesor Stephen uh, Davis. He's a professor at Lone Star College. He's going to be talking a whole lot about the insurrection causes, uh, solutions, that sort of thing. It's a very important part of the dialogue as far as what's going on right now in America. Secondly, or uh, we'll start, however, with uh, Maithili uh, Ramakrishna. She is a, uh, a friend of Politics Done Right. She is someone who, she's a doctor uh, that's traveled all over the world. And she has seen the healthcare system as it is around the world. But, you know, she's also gotten into a whole lot of activism. And in meeting all the people around the world, she sort of created a fusion of all these things in one and now she's created a podcast called The Synaptic Explorer. And when I asked her, why did you call it The Synaptic Explorer? I want you to listen out for her answer. But again, these are two great interviews. One from uh, a professor, one from a young millennial doctor. I think you guys are going to really enjoy that. But before we get started, I want to remind you that Politics Done Right KPFT needs your support. So if you'd call 713-526-5738, again, that number is 713-526-5738, please remember that we need your support and anything that you can provide us, whether it's a one-time deal, whether it's a monthly deal, uh, please consider being a part of it. This Houston community radio station is what we will continue to need right here in Houston, Texas. In the case of Politics Done Right, you know you're going to hear the progressive message. You know you're going to hear a message that's going to make all of us whole because we do our homework, we believe in people, and we know what crowdsourcing real information is all about. So 713-526-5738. 
this is Houston's community station. So let's let let's get it done, folks. We have two great interviews again. By the way, you can also Give us contributions at kpft.org. Again, that is kpft.org. Yes, community stations. We constantly in between our programs, before our programs, and after our programs. We have to ask you. Yes, you. We have to ask you to help us continue doing what you know. We've got to do 713-526-5738 and kpft.org. Let's get busy and have a little chat with Maithili Ramakrishna. Here we go. Today, I am honored once again in under 30 days to be with Maithili Ramakrishna for a very special reason. She started a new podcast and let me tell you folks down in the in the blog you're going to have a link to it i want everybody to subscribe to it it's called the synaptic explorer dr maithili ramakrishna welcome to politics done right once again thank you Egberto. it's my honor it's a pleasure talking to you as always well look let me tell you i did a first listen of your um your site i gotta be honest i didn't listen to the entire hour because it was late at night i was pretty busy but i just wanted to I uh, see how it sounded, and I am, I'm, you know, I love, I love everything about your website. I love the, and it puts you into an environment that makes you ready to listen. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. Now I want, but in as much as we want to talk about this new podcast that you want to do, I want to pick your brain first of all, because sure. on January sixth. Something happened in America that I thought I would have never seen. And for those of us who are immigrants, I'm an immigrant, you're an immigrant. It was not unexpected, but at the same time, it was shocking. Why don't you tell me your first, like, what you felt the first time that you really understood what was happening? So, you know, I, 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 the first time I watched that, it brought back childhood memories of what happened on December 20th in India in the 1990s. Um, a group of Hindu nationalists in India uh, went to probably one of the largest masjid or you know, um, Muslim prayer hall and a very ancient one at it and broke it down. And we called it Black Friday. And they did it on a Friday because Muslims were praying on Friday. And you're talking about, um, you know, I often bring that comparison because I have a master's in public administration um, and I took a lot of political science classes in America. Um, and so many of my papers, I have described the, you know, uh, world's oldest democracy versus world's largest democracy, right? And then, so when I watched that unfolding, that was unfolding in front of my eyes, it brought back that memory. And I have to tell you, my father, who was a staunch right-wing Hindu nationalist, was still horrified by that day's events. So I was born in a very political family. Um, my mother's side was very liberal and progressive. My father's side was very conservative ultra conservative. He was part of uh, something called RSS. Look it up. They are like, you know, they have sticks in their hands with shorts and they go every morning to exercise, but it's more, it started off more to do with discipline. 
but it's become so fringe today. My parents are no longer here, but I, you know, I would have loved to see what my father's reaction would have been. But I remember him being very horrified with that, you know, being that he comes from the same party that did it. And today India's ruling party is the same party. So um, was I surprised by it, Egberto? I wasn't. Um, uh, when I came to America for the first time, um, I lived in Pittsburgh and I was a Heinz fellow, a research fellow. There is a church associated with the University of Pittsburgh. What they do is they get immigrant people like me and a lot of Chinese uh, students, PhD fellows and doctors. They uh, pair us up with uh, rural families to talk about Christianity, right? And harmless, right? And these are people who are still my friends, you know? And I've gone to their houses, um, but I have seen a progressive, um, you know- Radicalization? Radicalization, that's a good word. I don't wanna use that word because one of my friends who did a bit of, my first interview was with my friend and we were delving exactly into this conversation. What she did is a, she was a postdoctoral fellow and she was talking to Christians and Muslims post September 11 using this Harvard methodology. I won't get into it. But what was interesting is all these people are scared of the other. And she said something interesting and I, I agreed with her. I said, you know, the people who attacked that day were probably the most scared. And probably how many Muslims have you met, Egberto? She asked me that question. I come, I come from a multi, uh, you know, uh, diversity. You're talking America's diversity? You have no idea. Come to India, it's diverse to the T, yeah? And I, even I don't have as many Muslim friends. Like, you know, I am someone who's very progressive, very whatever, you know, I always meet people. So I think she, I, I honestly think I was not surprised. I, I did know that it would go to that route. I was only surprised that, um, can I say this? I was surprised that the next step was not taken. You know? And you and know why the next step was not taken. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I believe that if, you, if, you, if we do not look at this incident and do not understand that it is all to do with the fact that none of us know how to get, you know, she said something, she described, you don't have to pull the walls between us. You have to make those po uh, walls porous in terms of understanding what your perspective is, you know? And I thought that was fascinating. And that's absolutely true because I've been to these Bible studies. These are God-fearing people who are, um, who are nice, you know? But, um, you know, even within 2011 to 20, I've seen how their posts have changed. And, and this is why, to me, just not talking to them or telling, you know, classifying a few people, uh, oh, you know, they're despicable people in the society. You can't do that. You really have to talk about, I, I, I understand that it was violent. I understand all of that. But you know what? I come from a country where the violence is taken, you know, we assassinated Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. It was a Hindu nationalist who, who assassinated him. But I always come back to what his process was, you know, um, would he have actually said, let me just call them despicable or let me just go understand what their issue is, you know? So that for me, those why, reactions. That is why you are going to be so successful with your new podcast. Um, uh, let me tell you something, Maithili, and I'm so glad that you said that, especially being a, a, a young woman, uh, that uh, not only that, a, a young woman of col color who many times have been aggrieved by this society proper, 
Yeah. And the reason I'm happy to hear you say that is I, I agree with absolutely everything that you said. And I do believe that we have to engage because just keeping that separation, it just makes it worse because there are people above that are taking advantage of that. In fact, a lot of times they are the drivers of that separation. Yeah. Because if you listen to what you just told me, you've known these people from your uh, from the time you came to this country and you have seen them progressively get more quote unquote not using your words radical and where did yes. that radicalization come from from good people yeah. no it came from somewhere else who used them who yeah. necessarily needed them to be radicalized i tell you something um I am in a, a several organizations that try to bring people together one specifically called the coffee party another one called the bridge alliance and i'm a on the board of directors of Coffee Party, and we were discussing this issue, and it was before January 6th, and we were in a board meeting, and I'm saying, I've seen this before, and I'm yeah. telling these folks, something is up in America, and something will happen in America, I've seen it before, and yeah. I got some pushback, and on January 6th, when this stuff exploded, and we saw how bad it really got, I got an email from one of the board of directors and he said, I guess this is what you were talking about. And what I said is that here in America, we like to call ourselves exceptional. And we think that there's something special about us where our humanity behaves differently than the humanity in Panama or India or elsewhere. And the truth of right. the matter is humans behave the same kind of, generally speaking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> you're absolutely right. And for me, I was just going to say, um, you know, the Ch Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. Yes, right? I remember. Yes. And then you think about all of that, you know, and I have friends living in all of these places and you know because i was in britain and you know the accessibility to france is very close by and so you you know even in britain the so-called radicalization or you know people becoming a little more and you're talking about a society which is atheist there's no like the the atheism in europe is very high it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with religious but again it is always coming back to oh why can't like in France, the problem is you're French. You can't be Indian French. You can't be Cameroonian French. You're French. And that, that I understand the constitution, uh, you know, the Republic of France's constitutional philosophy, but therein lies the problem if you're saying, I'm opening my country for immigrants. Because if you are opening your country for immigrants, then you have to be understanding of the fact that they are coming from these African countries and that they have their own perspectives because they did not grow up in France, you know? So I have a, so I'm a constitutionalist, you know, when I did my MPA, I was educated by professors who are amazing in the United States. And, you know, they're, they're, they are true to what the constitutional philosophy is. If I, you know, what does citizenship mean? You know, we can delve into all of that, but I take that seriously. On February 4th, I'm about to become a citizen of this country. And on Jan 6th, I witnessed that. And I remember a co-resident in my hospital, an African-American woman looked at me and said, are you sure you really want to become a citizen of this country? Look what is happening. And I said, no, you know, I understand what is happening. You know, and, and the greatness of this constitution of this country is the fact that I as an immigrant can stand up and disagree with what is happening. And that is what is happening. We're, we're unable to, whether it's on the right or the left, stand up and critically analyze anything. 
you know. And I, I will tell you on February 4th, if I do take, when I do take that oath, I will be proud, but I understand what the constitutional philosophy is and how many people have actually read all of this. And that's the problem I have. The problem I have is nobody wants to have a sustained discourse. I was, of course, I was angry. Of course, I was saddened that something like this can happen in a country that we all aspire to come here. You know, like in my own country, I can't talk about my country's anything without being arrested. I have mm-hmm. friends who are activists who are getting arrested, you know, who are scared to even post something on their social media. But here we are in America and, and the same thing is happening. So how do you stop that? You don't stop that by completely canceling the other side. I disagree with it vehemently. I'm sure it's a very controversial comment I'm making today, but you know what? I, I am going to make it because that's not how anything works. I've seen how it works in other countries. You, you know, in, in France, you have, they have, what they've done is completely taken all the immigrants, put them in the east, eastern part of Paris and said, oh, we won't give you jobs. We're going to discriminate you. And what's going to happen to the youth when you are, you know, when you keep pushing a community back you know, to the wall, they're going to retaliate. Exactly. And, and I think part of that was that. And part of that was, I was talking to a friend of mine in Britain and he's a socialist and he's a very vocal socialist. He hates the identity politics. And he said something interesting. He said, do you know that half those people who came to protest was not working class right wingers at all? They flew in, you know, planes. This is capitalism again, doing its job. Exactly. So you don't have working class farmers taking up weapons and saying, I'm going to take back the capital. That's not right. Exactly. He's a rich elite capitalist on the other side. So what you witnessed is capitalism to the hilt. You know, it, it, it is that thing that you witnessed. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, Trump supporters who are poor, who are fighting from paycheck to paycheck doing what they're doing. It was again, like you said, you know, a bunch of elite people, except on the other side who wanted, or I don't know which side, but wanted to take advantage of this. That is, that is, that is so true. And, and I think that is so important that we, we take a look at it critically. I had a, a, a man call, uh, he wrote the book, The Redneck Reverie. And he was on the show. He's a, he's a right winger. And uh, we went over why is it that rural folks don't vote for them. And, we, and, and you know, we, we had a great conversation. And he has a lot of real points. And I think that is where we have to go. And that's why I, that's why I, 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 want, I, want a, I want our type of dialogue to make it. Yeah. It's not easy to get our type of dialogue out there because we're not trying to polarize one side or the other. We're trying to tell folks, we, you can keep your values, the good parts of your values, and, and get things done. And you can learn to listen to somebody whether you agree with them or not. And I think young people like yourself coming up and sharing that, that stuff, you, don't, I, I, you know how great it was to hear you say you're not into the cancel culture. Because I've spoken about what occurred in Berkeley, where they canceled the right-wingers from coming to speak. I want them to speak. Many times they are there, uh, some of the things that the right wingers stand for that is incorrect. Many times letting them vocalize it is its best antidote. But, you know, that is being American, right? I mean, your constitution talks about it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the value of the constitution, right? I mean, 
you know, I, I'm not going to get into how they were all slave owners. I'm not going to get into that argument because that's, that again, I have an opinion about it because they were still men of intellect, men who were forward thinkers, men who pushed the boundaries during their time. Because for me, I will tell you, 100 years from now, when they look at Maithi Ramakrishna, they'll probably say she was not as progressive. Right. Because, you know, you have to judge someone during their time. And yes, I mean, if you're going to judge by that, Hitler was a bad person even during his time. I agree with that. But if you're going to say, I'm going to pull down, uh, you know, President Grant's statue, a man who fought for the, you know, uh, for the right side during, you know, your civil war. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not, I am not going to support that. But, but am I the right for that? I mean, you know, this is what I'm saying. I, the problem with all of us is that we do not know, like you said, how to dialogue. And you know what's the funny thing about it? Uh, I don't even care. Look, you know, people put a whole lot of uh, effort into statues and pulling them down or whatever. Instead of spending <laughs> yeah. the money to pull down a statue, take the money that would have taken to pull down a statue and go feed a few people in. in, in I, the agree. I agree. I said the same thing. Yeah, I am not I, into that. I am into working with people. You, you know, if I go ahead and I go to Panama and I look at every statue in Panama and I look, I mean, I, I you would go crazy. And when it comes to the, what I do when it comes to the founding fathers is, a lot of people revere the founding fathers. For me, they made an elastic clause in the constitution that allowed it to change that eventually things could change. And I don't revere them. I don't hate them. Yeah. I look at them for exactly what they were, men looking out for themselves and that yeah. we yeah, yeah, yeah. could actually do things. But I, I want to move our subject because we're coming close on time here. And I want to talk about something called the Synaptic Explorer, conducting conversations <laughs> to connect after... To, I mean, this is how you this is how you i want you guys to listen to uh, say how this this stuff starts it says conducting conversations to connect after having lived and worked in three different continents and having worn many different hats in the recent past researcher doctor public health professional city planner social entrepreneur activist and so on and that <laughs> is who she is and <laughs> let me tell you with all of that with all of that experience folks the Synaptic Explorer, I want you to go ahead and listen to that thing. Why did you call it the Synaptic Explorer? Explain that to us because we're not all doctors here. What is that? <laughs> okay, but you don't have to be a doctor per se, but I will tell you synapsis or synaptic is a Latin word. Uh, it's basically two neurons. You know, in our, in our uh, brain, when the brain has to send message to its limbs and everything, it goes through neurons. And it has these synapses or connection between two neurons. The message has to fly from one nerve to another nerve for your body to understand. So I wanted, yeah, I mean, because of my background, I wanted that. But I also wanted to add exploring because I still think in this world, I'm an explorer. I explorer of ideas, of um, you know, uh, thoughts and thought processes, because I think that democracy is definitely about conversations and definitely having sustained conversations at it. And I'm just adding my voice. And I'm, I, I started this out of a need to reconnect to all my friends, wonderful friends that I have around the world doing amazing things. And, you know, every time I get back to that place where I'm having this conversation and I feel like somebody should have recorded this because what a lot of thought came out of it. I may not have agreed with them. I may not have, you know, completely like been on the same page, but nevertheless, they've, they've sparked my inspiration. They've sparked me in the past. So 
I just wanted to spark and have conversations and have that voice to, for democracy somewhere. Maybe this, maybe my lifetime or maybe after my lifetime, you know, because I, I heard um, Sarah Weddington in one of the conferences that I went and she said, are you willing to leave a thumbprint? And that, that to me was like always there, you know, I always had that and I said, am I willing? So you're willing to leave your thumbprint Egberto, to what you're doing. And, and, I, and I think you do it wonderfully and I think you have to do it. And, but the problem is how many of us are willing to go out there and do this? You know, I have right. a lot of friends who are shy and you know, a lot of that, but you know, convincing them saying, no, I wanna have this conversation just for me then to reconnect. But maybe one person or two people may listen to it and you know, have some ideas with this. You know? so, Actually quite a more, more than that. And look, I, I wanna thank you first of all for creating that podcast. And uh, I, I, like I tell folks, it is a soothing listen to, and she has very good, the, the, the two that I've, I've scanned so far, uh, very, uh, a very good, good audience. So I uh, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Uh, we'll make sure that everybody knows how to get directly to your podcast. And please, my Thili Ramakrishna, keep up your great work. Thank you so much. As usual, you encourage people like us. And so it's because of, you know, people like you that we stand on your shoulders. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. Isn't Maithili Ramakrishna great? Anyhow, folks, uh, please give us a call at 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738, or go to kpft.org and provide whatever you can. Remember, folks, Houston's community station is yours. It is yours. Politics done right, it is yours. We provide what folks need to hear in these times of fake news. And you know what? Next week, we have another interview that's going to talk about fake news. So anyhow, give us a call, 713-526-5738. Let's get busy and get on to Professor Davis. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. I'm here with the one and only Professor Stephen Davis of Lone Star College. Uh, well, I don't know if you titled it, I titled it, I don't remember now, but it's The Capital mm-hmm. Assault, Roots and Solutions. I think that's your title, actually. It is. And, and um, I, I read the paper and I was like, I think this is important because you touched on all issues. Uh, first of all, you, you said in short run, we should support, first of all, you, you, you acknowledge what occurred. Then there are four things that you divided on. We need to support those who are going to uh, prosecute these folks. You also need to uh, educate people. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it. 
because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. It has 1619 in the title and start from there. It's systemic racism. It's centuries of that kind of thing. And I think we've seen at crucial junctures in American history, when it seems we're about to make some real breakthrough and make progress, there's pushback. And it's because there are white men who've gotten used to a situation in which I don't like to use cliches like white skin privilege, but it's there. Um, for the longest time in our history, certainly the history of the South is a good example, simply by fact of being white, even if you were mediocre in terms of your talents and in terms of your efforts, you still had a category of people that were underneath you, and that provided some comfort. I think it explains why 75% of the white families at the time of the Civil War in the South didn't own any slaves, yet uh, so many of those men, the bulk of them supported that system and were willing to die to preserve uh, and extend slavery in the United States. And when you have a situation, we can certainly look back now to President Obama's election in 2008. That's been deeply dissettling to some people. And I think that, you know, when you look at the crowd, at the mob that stormed the Capitol, uh, that's who comprised it. Angry white men. They feel aggrieved. They feel resentful that the world has changed. The, the world is shifting under their feet and uh, they feel at a loss. And I think we can be empathetic to a degree, but there's only so far our empathy should extend. So I, I, I think Trump, of course, had fanned these fires. He's not a smart man, but he's a political genius at touching those kinds of buttons and making those kinds of either coded or not so coded racial appeals. So when I, when I said in the title of the piece, the roots of the insurrection of the attack on our capital, that's what I was getting at there. Now, when you say... Um... I want to I want to back out a little bit from your paper somewhat and, and tell you some of the thoughts that I've had, right? I've always looked at uh, race from the inception of this country a little bit different than others, right? I always looked at race as a tool. And yes, there is, I, be, I truly believe in that there is race supremacy, but I think it's an, an inputted tool into the minds of people so that ultimately we can have a few in control. Any validity you give that as a historian? I think, I think there's truth in that, that people who have power, and if I had wealth and power, I would probably want to hold on to it as well. So it's not surprising to me that uh, an elite would uh, use this as a manipulative tool, even though they might feel themselves above some of the most naked of the racist feelings. But I think all too sadly, there are, is an element of our population that's capable of being manipulated and absorbing that kind of sentiment and mentality. So I think it's both at work at the same time. I wonder about the white men who you know, comprise that crowd, are some of them redeemable? Perhaps so, and I address that later in terms of the kinds of policies that would address some of the insecurities in their lives some of those psychological insecurities, financial insecurities and the like. But some of them, I'm not sure, can be redeemed, Egberto. I think that virus of racism has infected a number of people very deeply. And I grew up in this society in the South, coming of age in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, I, I tell, I'm, it's not a great admission I make, but I feel the need to tell my students, I use that word to describe Black people until I was 15 or 16 years old. That's the way I was brought up. 
Now, education was the key in my life, and then the changes of the 1960s arise above all that. But I think I know that culture from firsthand experience. It's not an academic experience for me. Um, so yes, it is a tool for you know for those to want to maintain power, but uh, there's some people who've been more than willing to go along for the ride. Sadly, no, I, I want to explore that since uh, you know, I mean, you you lived it uh, since you lived it and you understand it. Uh, in in those surroundings, what actually goes on in those surroundings? In other words, what is it intrinsic to that person that makes them need to feel what they feel that they can look at somebody, let's say like me, and mm-hmm. simply not like me just because of my hue? What is the chemical stuff, not chemical, but what is the psychology that's occurring that creates that? I think, again, it's just a need to have somebody beneath. Uh, I think people find a comfort in that. There's a song by uh, Randy Newman that dates from the 70s called Rednecks. Mm-hmm. And I've never had the nerve to play it in class because I think the, the lyrics are just too explosive. But I urge you to look at that. And it's about keeping certain people down and how that, especially not, not that the rest of the country is immune to racism or from it, but in the South, and I'm a native Texan, um, and that's the part of the country that has shaped me. It has especially been problematic. So uh, you, you think that, it, that, it, that there's this necessity, and I, actually that plays into the, the plutocracy's hands, right? Because mm-hmm. if, uh, if you know that you're not at the bottom, uh, then it doesn't feel so bad that you are not at the top, right? Absolutely. It's kind of the what's the matter with Kansas thesis um, in terms of people ultimately uh, voting against their own interests voting against their own economic interests. Now, maybe they're not really voting against their interests if they feel they have a stake in this continued social structure. Now, um, you said that one of the solutions to this problem is education. But uh, let me let me back up a, a little bit because you also said that you do believe that there may be some people that really, they are so far wired that way that even education wouldn't work with them. That's right. I think, but I think we have to try all the same, and I think we have to 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 uh, we have to understand this is the long term solution. So, as a teacher in the classroom, well, not exactly in the classroom right now due to the pandemic, <laughs> but there are certain things I feel that I can contribute, and I, I know that it's not it's not me alone. There are an army of teachers, hopefully across the country, who want to to make that uh, effort as well. So there's a cumulative effect over time. I see behind you the books. Books are so important. If we can just hook people on reading, if we can increase the attention spans, if we can uh, expose them through literature and history to the beautiful things in life, if we can if we can elevate their critical faculties, they begin to question some of this kind of ugly stuff. And I think it also inoculates against the appeal of a demagogue like Trump, who frankly, any person with the degree of knowledge should see is simply not fit for national office. At, at any level, let alone the level of the presidency. So education is the long-term fix. Um, I think that uh, I had to be careful in the classroom because I can't be explicitly, uh, it would be unfair to my students promoting some kind of political agenda. So there are other things I think that frankly are subversive. Books would be one of those. I think I'm emphasizing my courses travel. Uh, we can't travel now, but we can look ahead to a time when we come because it exposes us to other cultures and other ways. Uh, other people, our country is a great country, but there are other countries too that have great ideas. And I like Michael Moore's thesis about where to invade next. That, we that was a great movie this. too. Yeah. It really was. But let's go in there and steal some of those ideas. It's not like they're copyrighted. And so I, I try to integrate travel 
as a theme into my courses because of the corrosive effect it would have over time for a lot of these uh, racist uh, attitudes. Uh, and I think again, in the period in which we live, being a history teacher, you know, we talk about, well, we don't wanna just bore people with the facts, but there is the importance of just teaching objective reality. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the facts and the truth really matter. So that's the educational agenda I've got. And uh, again, I've realized it's, there's gonna be a whole lot of work to be done long after I'm gone, but this is what I'm determined to do as, um, and to work at that as hard as I possibly can. Now, you also have some, uh, some programs that you also think that we should have, but before we get there, I, I have a question. You, you're in the, when you're in the classrooms and you're, you're teaching here in Lone, at Lone Star, you have a whole lot of students from both rural, and, and both rural areas and suburban and urban areas in your classes. Um, one of the hopes that we had was that by this time, the younger generation that's coming up, because they've lived among just about everybody, that some of the, the carnal nature of racism would pretty much be gone. If you live together with somebody, you realize, hey, we do the things the same way after all. So there's no mystique or mystery among people as you have when you have things like segregation. In your classes, have you seen that people working together solves the problem? Or do you think the demagogues like Donald Trump uh, would be able to get to those with grievances, either real or implied? Oh, I, I've seen a, an incredible difference in the 37 years I've been teaching at Lone Star in Kingwood. And it has to do with that mix, with uh, me looking out over the student body and seeing that wonderful, that that rainbow of, of different colors. And and I think we, there's no doubt about it. I think there's all kind of data to indicate that the, the current generation just doesn't have the deeply rooted prejudices. It's not to say you can't find some, but just on one issue alone, homophobia. Mm -hmm. When I started teaching in Kingwood in the 1980s, I could not uh, have a fruitful discussion of homosexuality in my classroom. There would be so much snickering and there would be so many uh, ugly words and uh, so much of uh, a lack of receptivity, but that clearly has changed. And we see that statistically, the support for gay marriage over the years. And Barack Obama since that, when Joe Biden, remember, was the one who pushed that him. Pushed him, yeah. He, he changed his mind. And it was right before the 2012 election when, you know, he's a great politician. He he had the sense that things are changing. And, and among my youth base, there's a greater receptivity here. So I don't doubt that there are residual elements, but I've seen it in the classroom. And that's what really makes me hopeful. Over the years, I would conduct straw polls at the time of presidential elections. When I came to Kingwood College, the first year we opened was 1984. I polled my students on secret ballot who they would vote for for president. And Reagan won with 80% against Fritz Mondale. And that tide began to turn in the early 2000s. And uh, it almost exactly tracked the dramatic upswing in terms of the Latino percentage of our student population. And uh, so, I, you know, in a way that's discouraging because so much of it's linked to race. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, th I think the, the, the white kids too, I think generally they have more progressive uh, feelings. And for those who come from the rural backgrounds, it's good to have them in the mix because I don't think they're, I think that sometimes they're exposed to a kind of culture that's retrograde in some of these respects. And it's really good to have them all there together. Now, look, um, that is, first of all, that is great to know because you are right there at the pulse where, where the young folks are. Um, what concerned me the most about this last election, and then we'll go into some of the programs that you talk about, um, is that we had 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump 
ironically, that is more than any other presidential candidate has ever gotten, except for Joe Biden. That was a concerning number for me because a lot of people thought if Joe Biden got what Hillary Clinton got or a little bit more, that would have been enough for him to win the election. He would have lost the election in a landslide under that scenario. Instead, he won on a landslide, what I call a landslide, 7 million votes, mm-hmm. even as, in as much as Donald Trump got what he got. How do you explain or how would you break down that 74 million people? I mean, I must tell you, it is shocking to me and disappointing to me that there are so many people who would vote for this guy. And I know some of them know better. Well, I think there are people um, we understand who got things they wanted from the Trump administration. So you have that traditional wing of the Republican Party, many of them good people, people that are in my extended family. They like the the tax cuts. They like the deregulation. That was good for business. So there's that traditional element that was kind of along for the ride. You know, you have to be careful about the parallels with Nazi Germany, but that's kind of the way the German conservatives, the nationalists, felt about bringing Hitler in. They thought they could control him and that there were certain things that he could deliver. And he did in terms of certain of the policies uh, that would have been opposed by the parties on the left. I think another uh, hardcore, uh, as we, we know, a portion of uh, Trump's base would be evangelical Christians. You know, I saw a very disturbing survey in the Chronicle some months ago, Egberto, and it said that among white evangelicals, and I think that the Catholics uh, in in that category were included too, that there's a direct correlation between the the regularity of church attendance and the levels of racial, racial resentment. And it made me wonder, what in the hell are they learning in those churches? I don't think it's explicit, but as bad as the Baptist church was in terms of the attitudes there when I went that as a kid growing up, there was a song about how Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Something's being lost in the communication. So I think that part of the population that's so wed to that kind of religious outlook that a fundamentalist outlook in many cases, they got things they wanted from Trump too in terms of his you know, genius ability to appeal to them on, on social on social values. I think too, there's been some research on the kind of personalities, and this explains some of Trump's base too. There, there's a way to measure what's called an authoritarian personality type. There are certain people who like to be led, and there are certain people who like to try to dominate. And Trump's own a leadership style and who Trump is appeal to those folks. And I think a lot of those people come from churches where those preachers are in a kind of an authoritarian leadership right. role. Right. And that's a part of it. So I bring it back around to our prior point, uh, Egberto, education is such a key. Um, I'm not as religious as I used to be. And some of this I was when I was a teenager. And some of that is I learned about a broader world out there. That's not to say that people should reject uh, religion in its entirety. But uh, I like what somebody had recently said that there are those Christians and then there are people who are followers of Jesus. And I hope we can push more and more, get more and more to still go to church. And I love to go to church with my wife when the church is functioning. 
to be in that category of followers right. of Jesus because there's a lot of a beautiful message there. I would argue that Jesus himself was something of a Christian socialist. Well, actually, I think if you follow Jesus's writings or, or what, what we learned about Jesus, that is a, that is a fact, right? I mean, it's yes. the type of sharing, the type of things that he support is really, it's really collective, the collective, exactly. right? Well, That's the, last, how... the last shall be first. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, we, I mean, the thing about it is it's funny because I, 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 I wrote a pastor here in Kingwood somewhere who wrote a piece in the newspapers taught, uh, given the Christian evaluation of capitalism. Capitalism was Christian. And I'm like, uh, yes, are you yes. kidding me? Yes. Something yes, that right. has no soul, something that is based on selfishness, something that is based on greed. You're associating with Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. <laughs> it really is blasphemous. In the same way the Spanish Inquisition did blasphemous things to people right. they considered to be heretics. That's not Christian. That's not, not being all. of Jesus. Yes. Now, I have another contention, and that is I think, I think that, uh, there's a lot of latent racism that uh, generally just goes hidden as long as people are comfortable and not having to fight for things they generally there are certain things that are just kept swept under the rug so i think um uh you know a lot of people like to say a lot of these issues are economic or not economic i fall in a place that i think i think lack of of good economics can bring out a whole lot of things that otherwise stay hidden now you mentioned in your in your piece that there are some social democratic policies that we need to, that we should think about. Why don't you tell me a little bit about those? Well, um, you had seen that um, a friend of mine and I collaborated on uh, launching a new website, just a local effort. We'll see where it goes called the I tell you what, why don't you tell folks uh, how your website, what it's about, and then we can talk that question. Yes, the website is for the new social Democrats. Uh, right now there's, uh, it's kind of preposterous because it's me and a friend right here in town who uh, wrote a kind of social democratic manifesto and. Uh, we put a website together and we're hoping to, to start a conversation and, and see where this goes and find allies all over the United States. And what we're doing is we're, we're feeling that there should be an organization in this country at some point that explicitly supports the kind of social democratic policies we see in Scandinavia, especially, and in Western Europe. Now, the good news is the Bernie Sanders campaign was it was referencing those policies exactly. Whenever Bernie was asked to give examples of what he he was uh, uh, not uh, afraid to call democratic socialism. He always talks about places like Denmark. So that's what we're hoping to do. Um, and I think that over time, those policies which create or aim at creating a more egalitarian and democratic society, to me, that's what social democracy or democratic socialism means, lifts the entire population and, and creates just a, a better sense of social cohesion and, uh, and belongingness. And, socialism, if you want to put it that way, with a hyphen in between. And I think it can get at the roots of some of that, uh, that ugliness that, that feeds racism. So uh, that's kind of uh, what I was getting at there, that we've got a long way to go before we have policies in the United States in areas like healthcare and uh, just uh, things like uh, maternal leave, the side one specific, and a tax policy. We've got a long way to go before we get to even what the Scandinavians have done so far. And I'd like to see more of that happen. And I'd like to have a place where people can go where that explicitly is the objective. Hence the need for the new social Democrats. Now, I, we came up with the title new because there's a sense that we need to reboot. We need a kind of a reset. Some of those countries in, 
and that I'm referring to kind of lost the path for a while and uh, suffered a loss of some of their popularity. But I think the basic principles remain sound. And uh, there's a Netflix series that inspired me called Borgen that's about a female prime minister in Denmark in the early uh, uh, two, two, uh, 2010s. And uh, her name is Brigitte uh, Newborg, uh, Birgitta. And at one point she feels the need in the Danish party system to make a new start. And she launches a party called the New Democrats, which has a kind of a social democratic platform. So that inspired me to come up with. I have been fed, that's a fact. I have been fed, that's a fact. My credit card purchases get me cash back. My credit card purchases get me cash back. No one else gets these rewards. Sergeant, that is just plain untrue. What in tarnation? Sir. PenFed's PowerCash Rewards Card isn't just for military members. Anyone can get cash back on all purchases. Ah, friggins! You've ruined my favorite song. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash PowerCash. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies. Making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. It's a title for what we're, we're modestly trying to put into motion here. I think that is very important because, you know, first of all, you know, I've, I've, gone through this thing, whether, you know, uh, what, what the plutocracy has done here via the Paul Manifesto and others is they've tried to make the word social, socialism, which is really a good word. They've, they've just about made it a bad word. And the, the, the thing that many Democrats who believe in all these policies, I mean, it's, it's a real democracy. These are democratizing policies. What a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people are debating, should we be using the word uh, given the stigma attached to it or should we come up with something else that is less stigmatizing because it hasn't been beaten up yet to which my my answer is generally that anything that we bring up that brings everybody in they'll turn that word into a bad thing so why not uh, make folks understand that what they call the bad thing was really a lie and explain what it really means, even if it takes time to do so. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very important conversation to be had. And I don't know that I've come to an ultimate conclusion, Egberto. I think, again, we really need to explore that very thoroughly. Now, you see that that's some of what, what we're doing here with the use of the term social democrat, that it doesn't have that kind of stigma. Because not only has the word socialism been besmirched, and used dishonestly and as a political club by the right, it is also, let us be very honest about this, been really corrupted by the left, elements of the left. Um, when Actually, I see- when you say that, I think that bears a bit of explanation because a lot of the left needs to understand that. So why don't you explain that? Well, when I see a headline like uh, Venezuelan socialist and uh, what they're what they're doing, uh, the Maduro regime, this is right. not a regime that anyone with my kind of political values would would want to identify with and associate. Uh, here in Houston a few weeks ago, there was a Black Lives Matter related protest in uh, Lamarck. And I saw in the news coverage some uh, people marching around and they had red t-shirts that had a hammer and sickle. Uh, a couple of these people had long guns. 
and trying to emulate, I think, the militias on the right. And uh, the T-shirt said Houston Socialist Movement. Well, I looked it up online and it didn't take very long for me to um, discover that this was nothing more than a front group for very small, a local uh, chapter of the Communist Party of the United States. That kind of stuff doesn't help. We have to fight this kind of, this kind of uh, misuse of socialism all the time. And I'm not sure then whether you know so much damage has not been done that we can ever rehabilitate fully determine the way it should be. George Orwell, who's one of my inspirations, I'm not real, I didn't come to this from Karl Marx. It was sources like Orwell and the Fabian Society in England. And Orwell in one of his essays said that socialism has become a diamond beneath a mountain of dung. And uh, so we, <laughs> that's part of what we try to do is dig, to dig it out. But I'm not sure at this point, Egberto, there are enough shovels. So, so let, let me he, ask you this then, yes. because you mm -hmm. use the word social democrat on your uh, new website, are you, are you just taking out the ism out of it because of that? Or do you, what, what's your intent? Well, I think, again, Egberto, there's a good debate that has to take place about what ultimately do we mean by, by socialism. And could it actually be that what we're seeing in those countries that inspire uh, people like me in Eastern Europe, uh, not Eastern Europe, God, God knows, Western Europe, is a mix, is some kind of a hybrid form. And will it ever be socialism in some true traditional sense of the term? I don't know. And I'm not really sure at this stage it's all that important. I as long as we keep moving toward the goal of what we would say here, a more perfect union, not a perfect union, we'll never attain that, but we keep moving toward a goal of a better society and pursuing the kinds of reforms along those lines. I think you may well get to the point where you have accumulated enough of these reforms and put them in place that you end up with something different. And uh, so maybe that's what I mean by social democracy. And it could well be that I'm, I'm moving toward a place where that is distinctive from socialism itself. You know what Does is interesting is that I always call, I always say, uh, what, if we look out for humanity, everything would be fine. You know, when you ask somebody, "Hey, this policy is it good for people?" Yeah, the, the first thing a biz, uh, the first thing the politician asks, "How does it affect business?" Uh, and what we are supposed to ask is, how does it affect humanity? And then you build a business around how, you know, you, you decide how you want your, how humanity will exist in your society. And then you build a business process around it. You know, somehow that seems to be anathema to the thinkers. But um, I, I like what you said. I've talked, spoken about a bifurcated economy because I do believe in competition to make products, that sort of stuff. But I also believe that uh, if you break your leg tomorrow, there's nothing about competition. You're going to go look to find a, find a hospital or, you know, so I think we have to look at an economy where there are things that are needed absolutely and that doesn't belong in the risky part of the economy. And there are things where risk is good, where it belongs. And I, and I kind of think that is sort of what you're saying when you exactly. put all these things together that exactly. makes sense. One thinker I much admire, I don't know that he should be called a thinker, is Rick Steves. And uh, Rick Steves, of course, has an enormously uh, popular uh, business in terms of the tour guides, primarily for European rides and the, the, uh, the podcast he does and the, the stuff that he sells on his website. This man is a capitalist. I would imagine he's worth tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But if you read his book, Travel as a Political Act, there's a great chapter on Denmark. There's a great chapter on the necessity of the European Union. There's a great cha chapter on drug policy in Europe. He's very admiring of just the kind of thing you're talking about. He's a capitalist in the truest sense of the term, but he, he sees the benefits of the social democratic policies, the kind of social cohesion that in a country like Denmark or Norway has helped them combat much more effectively COVID-19. Now, 
it's been a mixed bag. Sweden hasn't done as well for various reasons as some of the others. But I don't think it's accidental that they Norway has done a whole lot better than we have. Um, uh, you know, there's just a, a raft of reasons, and I think that the, the outlook, that mindset, is and the culture is different because of years of parties which have have promoted these kinds of ideas. I mean, it's important. I mean, le- le- you just mentioned COVID. You take a look at COVID and the solution. COVID doesn't know borders. COVID doesn't know boundaries. How does centralization doesn't, it's not what's needed for COVID given the way COVID spreads, given the way, I mean, people get, but anyhow, that's beyond that. We're coming up close on time. So I ask this question to every single person that I interview, and that is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Uh, well, let me just say, I guess this new organization, the new Social Democrats, because I would like to get a plug in for that. I'd like for people to check out our ideas. Uh, what motivated that more specifically? And that has to do with a certain uh, deep misgivings that my friend and I have about the, the largest socialist organization in the country for some time, the Democratic Socialists of America, I feel is taking a wrong direction. They refuse to endorse Biden in the campaign. Rhetorically, they use a kind of language that's off-putting. Uh, there are a lot of Marxists in the group that have a revolutionary kind of agenda. Uh, you know, Sadly, most of the people who joined since the Bernie Sanders campaign are young people who are inspired by Bernie, who don't have that extreme kind of politics. And so that's one thing I'd like to say that that I, I have hopes that that organization can find a, a better political path. And in the meantime, I want to pitch the appeal of the new Social Democrats to people that are to the right of us, people like my friends in the Kingwood area Democrats, people who currently identify as liberals and progressives, that uh, there's a sweet spot somewhere there where liberalism and progressivism shades into social democracy. And so I, I, that's all I want to do. I want to get in a kind of a closing uh, commentary in regard to that in terms of an ultimate political objective. So do check out the website. Uh, if you do that for newsocdems.org and uh, check out what we have to say and get in touch, I would, I would really appreciate your feedback. Professor Stephen Davis, as usual, it's always my pleasure to speak to you, to learn from you, to get new information from you. Thank you for having been on Politics Done Right. Well, thank you, Egberto. The admiration is mutual. We've done a lot of great things, and I look forward to, to collaborations in the future. Thank you so much. We spend a lot of time deconstructing. Well, folks, that was Professor Stephen Davis. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. I did when we we sat down and had that great chat. Let me tell you, folks, uh, there are a lot of good people out there. There are a lot of good professors, a lot of good doctors, a lot of good activists out there all working in concert to really make this a better, a better country, a better county, a better city. And we need to ask you to make this a better radio station, Houston Community Station. Please give us a call at 713-526-5738. Again, that number is 713-526-5738. And of course, you can give us a contribution as well at kpft.org. I have a little message I want to tell you guys before we get off the air on Politics Done Right. Look, there in Congress, folks are working on, or politicians are working on that uh, stimulus, that uh, COVID-19 relief package. We don't need half measures. 
but we will get half measures if these politicians think you are going to stay silent and acquiesce to whatever they have to offer. What I'm here to tell you is make your voices heard. Call your politician and tell them, support the American people. You had no problems when it came to supporting the plutocracy. Now it is time to support those who made this country what it is. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. I'm Robert Conti, chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. I have an urgent message. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities have increased in D.C., and I need your help to reverse this troubling trend. Did you know that using a seatbelt can drastically reduce the risk of death or serious injury to you or a loved one? Seatbelts save lives, and together we can accomplish a safer community. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C. Always wear your seatbelt. Click it or tick it. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your Internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.